I read John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel, therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained on him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Behold the Lamb of God is not only one of the most interesting statements in the Bible, but it's one of the most important. Have you ever wondered why John the Baptist made this statement, Behold the Lamb of God? It's an unusual statement, especially coming from someone so important a character as John the Baptist. John the Baptist only says this statement two times, once here in verse 29 and the other time in verse 36. No one else in the Bible ever made this statement except these two times. It is significant. Doesn't it seem like an unusual thing to say, behold the Lamb of God? Many gloss over it, and some just take this statement for granted. I remember when I was a brand new Christian, oh, I would say not more than a week or two in the faith. I remember reading this statement as I began going through the Gospels, especially John and the person who began discipling me. When I asked him, where should I start reading the Bible? I never read the Bible before. He said, well, begin at the Gospel of John. I think most of us recommend that for new believers. And I, I come across this statement here, right here in John 129. And I read about John the Baptist saying, behold, the Lamb of God. And I thought, what, what does that mean? Being from a Jewish background, I had absolutely no knowledge of the Bible and no background whatsoever in the issues connected with this statement, Behold the Lamb of God. And I remembered thinking as I read this, why does John call Jesus a lamb? He's not a lamb. He's a man. So I was thinking in physical terms, pretty much like most Jews in the Bible thought who were unconverted. They thought in physical ter terms. Well, God willing, I'll answer that question somewhat today in this message titled, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, we're going to have to slow down a little bit here because we hit a, we hit a, a road bump in our study of John because there are a few very rich and valuable truths that we dare not speed through here beginning at verse 29. It's pretty much contained these truths in verse 29, that I don't want to rush through. And these truths need to be unpacked and applied with more depth in order to be faithful to the text and to do the right thing by those who are hearing these messages. And so we'll consider three points over the next few messages from John 1, 29 through 34. First, John's testimony about the Lamb of God, verses 29 and 30. Today, we'll, we will only look at verse 29. After that, John's testimony about the Son of God. And then we'll draw some lessons from John's testimony and, of course, intersperse those lessons with applications. After the introduction in John 1, verses 1 through 18, the rest of the chapter, verses 19 through 51, is, to, is devoted to bringing out an early testimony to Christ. This testimony is given by John the, John the Baptist, particularly in verses 19 through 39, to the Pharisees, his testimony to the people in verses 29 through 30. 
4 to the Pharisees in verses 20 or 19 through 28. And then his testimony to the two disciples in verses 35 through 39. Now there are seven names for Christ given in John chapter 1, including the Son of God, the Word, the King of Israel, and there are four more. In verses 29 through 42, there's this conversation between John the Baptist and Jesus, where John gives two more titles of Christ, the Lamb of God and the Son of God. And we'll consider then the first of those two additional titles, numbers four and five, the Lamb of God. Let's look at then John's testimony about the Lamb of God, which is contained in verses 29 and 30. But today, like I mentioned, we'll only look at verse 29. Now, verse 29 uses, like I said, the fourth of John's seven names for Jesus, the Lamb of God. Look at verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and saw, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The phrase, who takes away the sin of the world, we'll look at next time. But today only, and maybe a little bit in our next study, we're going to look at the phrase, Behold, the Lamb of God. The commentators and theologians pause a very, very hate, uh, uh, weight weight of truth and commentary and grammatical explanations on this phrase, the Lamb of God. It brings upon the text five times more commentary, explanation, exposition, and discussion and application from the commentators than most other verses in the Bible. And it struck me that there's so much material on this phrase. And then some of those commentators would say, the reason why there's so much on this term, behold the Lamb of God, is because of the theological and pragmatic importance of this statement. It also is extremely significant and important to you and I in a practical way. And so we're going to begin to look at the importance pragmatically and theologically or doctrinally on the statement, Behold the Lamb of God. Let's, though, to be fair to the text, let's begin at the beginning of verse 29, where it says, The next day, that is, the day after John's conversation with the Jewish delegation that was sent from Jerusalem to John the Baptist from the Pharisees in Jerusalem. The day after that conversation that John the Baptist had with these Pharisees, this delegation sent from the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, continuing then, John saw Jesus coming toward him. Now this in itself has rich truth in it. And I think it's, a great experience for John the Baptist. I would love to be in his shoes at the time, at least in the sense that he looked up and saw Jesus coming to him. I'd be excited too if I looked up and saw the creator of the universe coming to me to have a conversation with me, to have a personal audience with me. Here is John the Baptist. He's in the middle of his ministry, he's baptizing, he's talking with people, he's preaching the gospel, and suddenly he looks up, and probably after a very, very long time of going without seeing Jesus or talking with Jesus, probably one of those two he never did, either saw him or talked with him, he sees his cousin, Jesus, after the flesh. John the Baptist was Christ's cousin coming toward him to have a personal conversation with him. And so I've often daydreamed about where I, what period on earth I would rather live in. And I, I automatically thought, like most Christians, yeah, if I, if I had my choice, it would be back in Jesus' day, right in Jerusalem or in the surrounding region, maybe Galilee, maybe Bethany, where I can go and find Jesus and just follow him for the rest of my life, come what may. Have you ever thought like that? But there's so many other factors involved when we think like that, that we may not necessarily want to live in that day. But that's another story. 
But but I think about this. Here is John the Baptist, and I'm wondering if John the Baptist, in the back of his mind, it doesn't say in the Bible, is thinking something like, here is my creator and my savior and my redeemer. He's giving me his full attention. And I think I think whether he thought that or not, I don't know. But in the moment, we know he was excited. And in the excitement of the moment, he cried out, Behold, the Lamb of God. You know, there are times in our prayer life as Christians where the Lord in his great mercy comes down and gives us an extra special token of his presence. And we might as well say, in other words, behold, the Lamb of God. I sense his presence, his comforting grace. This is Jesus, my Savior, fellowshipping with me, drawing near to me, comforting me, strengthening me. I could say, like John the Baptist, even though John saw him with his physical eyes, I don't have to see him. By faith, I can cry out, behold, the Lamb of God. He's with me. He's giving me his full attention. Though he upholds the universe simultaneously, yet it's as if I'm the only one in the whole world for him and for me at the moment. What a special blessing that the Lord Jesus Christ not only gives his full attention for super believers, if there is such a thing like John the Baptist, but for little old me, insignificant me, unworthy me. Never ever think that you are unworthy. That because of who you are, God doesn't care about you. He doesn't hear your prayers. You wouldn't be saved if he didn't care about you to begin with. And so, no exposition of verse 29 then would be complete without bringing out the connection of the term the Lamb of God to the Passover and to the Levitical sacrificial system because there is a very close connection. And the cue or the clue would be the term lamb. The Holy Spirit deliberately put it on John's heart, on his lips, and transferred that into the scripture of truth, the word lamb for a reason. Lambs were required as a yearly sacrifice for all Jewish families. They had to go to Jerusalem, every single Jewish family. Every single individual Jew had to go to Jerusalem once a year and make this sojourn. They needed to get a pure, unblemished, sacrificial lamb. Whether they had one already that they raised themselves or that they bought at certain places, they had to bring an unblemished lamb with them to sacrifice for their sins, to cover their sins. And so this holiday, the Passover, looked back to the days of Moses when the Jews were still in Egypt and they were getting ready to be delivered and brought out of captivity after 400 plus years of slavery in Egypt. And God commanded Moses to tell the Jews that they needed to take lamb's blood and paint the doorposts, the sides and the top of the doors, the inside doors, with the blood of a lamb. Not a goat, not a bullock, but a lamb. And that was a deliberate reference to the future. It typified, it allegorically was pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And so the painting of those doorposts of Israel allowed God's judgment to pass over the families and households of Israel who had their doors painted with that blood and to bypass the Jews. Isaiah 53.12 predicted that the blood of the Lamb of God 
would bear the sins of many. And so this connection to the Passover between Jesus being the Lamb of God as a figure and a type of what was displayed in the Passover, the original Passover, is the primary reason Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God. It has a direct connection to the Passover. And so when we look at Christ's crucifixion and his death on the cross, his crucifixion has heavy, weighty symbolism, not just in the Old Testament sacrifices in general, but the specific sacrifice of lambs on the Passover holiday and celebration, and specifically to the historical event of the Jews' exodus from Egypt and their preservation of being destroyed along with the firstborn of the Egyptians who did not who or who were not covered under the blood of these lambs, this lamb's blood painted on the doorposts. Now, when we look at the next phrase, behold the Lamb of God, the people that John the Baptist preached to, the people who were present, and there were probably hundreds, if not thousands there, at the Jordan River, where he baptized Jesus, they understood what he meant by the term Lamb of God. It signified the entire sacrificial system. And the Jews were used to talking about and hearing about the idea of sacrificial lambs. Most of them could not read and write Hebrew. But wherever they went and came under the teaching of the law, and the one thing the Jewish priests and Levites were pretty faithful in is teaching the five books of Moses, the law of Moses. And woven throughout, especially those five books, they call it the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses, is much teaching about the different kinds of sacrifices that the priests are to offer up on behalf of the people. There's more teaching on the sacrifice of a lamb and for the Passover than any of the other sacrifices. And so the Jews knew a lot about the idea of a lamb in connection with the sacrifice because they were very interested in the forgiveness of sins. The Jews were very concerned about making sure that their sins were com were covered and forgiven, although they didn't understand how it really works, spiritually speaking. And they did not put their trust in Jesus Christ as a whole, the coming Messiah in the future. But just like any unsaved religious person, someone who's not a believer, not a Christian, in terms of the biblical definition of a true Christian. Most unsaved people don't want to die and go to hell. Mm -hmm. And within the, the religious system that they're brought up in and that they're familiar with, most of them are interested in finding out about how their sins can be forgiven. And of course, they go down their religious rabbit trail and they never get peace with God and the, a sense of the forgiveness of their sins because the only source of that forgiveness and the peace which naturally comes from it in the heart of a true believer is based on the person and work of Jesus Christ. But some of these Jews would even be familiar with the term connected with the lamb in Isaiah 53. Turn over to Isaiah 53. There's a specific verse there I want to draw your attention to. Isaiah 53 and verse 7. Again, this prophecy of the suffering Messiah was written 706 to 700 years before Jesus was born. Isaiah 53, 7. He, that is the suffering anointed one from the Lord, was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. 
so he opened not his mouth. So here he's called a lamb, and he is referred to as a sheep. A lamb and a sheep. Now, lambs were required as a yearly sacrifice, like I said, for all Jewish families. So this concept of a lamb in relationship to the forgiveness of sins, in relationship to the covering of sins, somehow, some way, the Jews knew must be applied to them in order for their sins to be forgiven. And so the lamb was was this sacrificial, this main sacrificial animal in the Jewish sacrificial system of offerings. And the law instructed the the Jews to slay a lamb and sprinkle its blood as a sacrifice on the altar by the priests. Now, listen, the lamb was killed as a substitute. So the idea now of substitute is brought in. So there's the concept of a lamb. There's the truth of blood. And thirdly, there's this concept of substitute. And so all three of these, lamb, blood, and substitute, are intricately and intimately connected together. You must understand all three of them somehow in relationship to one another. The Jews ran into a problem because the idea of a lamb was only this objective truth that was taught within this system, this organizational Levitical system of sacrifices. But the blood element of it and the substitutionary element of it was never applied to them in an experiential or practical or personal way. The idea was of a lamb, they understood, the instructions and command to bring a lamb to the priest to be sacrificed on their behalf on the altar. They understood that, but they never understood except the remnant chosen by grace, the few Jews that were saved, they understood because by faith they trusted in the Messiah who was to come, and they understood by the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit that these other two parts, the blood and the lamb, must be applied to them personally in order for their sins to be forgiven. And ultimately that resulted in the fruit of salvation in receiving a new nature and a changed heart and being born from above. Mm-hmm. Even in the Old Testament. But most Jews, 95 plus percent, even more than that, were not converted. So they never exercised faith to lay hold of the blood that would cleanse and wash away their sins. They never understood how the Messiah would come and he would take their place as the sinner substitute in judgment and bear the sin, their sin in his own body on the cross. And so the lamb was killed as a substitute and its blood shed so that the sins of the person offering it might be covered. That is the Jewish people. And this intentionally, this process where the lamb and the blood and the substitutionary element of it where the sinner is taken out and Christ is inserted in the place of the sinner Christ bears the sin of the sinner and the righteousness of Christ is transferred to the sinner. Uh, They never understood that. They never laid hold of it by faith. And, but all of these truths, as interconnected as they were, pointed those Jews to Jesus Christ who was to come in the future that Isaiah 53 predicts and prophesies who was to come. And so when John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God, that one word, Lamb, has this huge body of doctrine and truth underneath it that the Jews never understand. Doctrines like substitutionary atonement, 
doctrines like reconciliation between God the Father and the sinner. The doctrine of propitiation, whereby the wrath of God is appeased and the undeserving, hell-deserving sinner is reconciled to God. The doctrine of justification, whereby outside of himself, outside of the sinner, God declares the sinner just and righteous in his eyes and afterwards initiates a subjective personal relationship in fellowship with the living God based on the same blood that justified him. This ongoing relationship with Christ in sanctification is based on that same blood. And so all these doctrines and truths become an experiential reality in the believer. And it's all tied back to this one word, Lamb, the Lamb of God. And so when John proclaimed in excitement as he saw Jesus coming to him, he didn't care who was there. He didn't care who was around him. This was a real personal experience for John. Behold, the Lamb of God. The Jews understood something, a little bit, of what John was saying because they understood the concept of a lamb. But beyond that, they didn't understand salvation. And this is what the majority of these poor Jewish people who left Jerusalem and wandered out into the Judean wilderness to see what this crazy preacher John was talking about, their hunger and thirst for righteousness, their desire to have their sins forgiven, transcended their mere natural curiosity about who this guy is, this new personality on the scene that wears camel's hair and eats locusts and spends all of his time out in the desert. They wanted to know how they can take this objective truth of the lamb that he proclaimed to make it their own, to make it personal. And so, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement or the vicarious atonement of Christ is proclaimed here. This is the very heart of the atoning death of Jesus on the cross. Substitutionary atonement. Jesus, that is, Jesus Christ died in our place when he was crucified on the cross. We deserve to be the ones placed on the cross to die. We deserve the nails to be pierced through our hands and our feet. Because we are the sinners who have broken God's law. But Christ took the punishment for our sins on himself in our place. He substituted himself for us and received the punishment that we rightly deserved. As we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21. Turn there. I want you to turn now to several texts in your Bibles. Whether you have a book uh, or a cell phone, your Bible on your cell phone. I want you to turn and look at these scriptures which undergird the doctrine of substitutionary atonement that John the Baptist proclaimed to these blind, deceived, ignorant Jews that were striving. Seeking to know salvation. Second Corinthians 5.21 For he made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so this verse teaches the truth of substitutionary atonement. It actually teaches the active and passive obedience of Christ. Two aspects of this divine transfer of which substitutionary atonement is an important truth embedded in it. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. That is, God took our sins, your sins. If you're a believer, if you're not a believer, you're still in your sin. Your sins are not forgiven. But if you are a believer, God took 
your sins, my sin. And he did not judge you for it. He punished and judged his own son on the cross. And he laid our sin on the head of Christ and poured out his wrath on the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ became my and your substitute. I don't think there is a Christian in the entire world now or who has ever lived that understands the blessing and the glory and the joy and the wonder of that truth. When we consider the amount of sin and the vileness and the sickness and the depravity of just one sin, let alone trillions mm. of sins that we commit over a lifetime. And when we also consider who this man was that died as the sinner's substitute on the cross, who he is and who he was in his nature and essence mm. as the impeccable, eternal, El Shaddai, God Almighty, who created the universe, who created the worlds, who had been worshipped by angels and by spirits of just men made perfect from all eternity past. Not one second or moment of wasted time in heaven in worshipping the second person of the Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ. Perfection incarnate who would divest himself of his glory and majesty temporarily mm. and take upon himself the form of a man, the form of a servant and be born of a woman come in human flesh at the incarnation and be unrecognized for who he is for 33 or so years in his godhood, in his deity, in his glory, in his Shekinah. When we think about who he is and his death on the cross, having the most wicked, unthinkable sins put on the head of the most sublime, gloriously, Perfect God. I don't think we will ever in this life fully plumb the depths of that glory. It should cause believers to shout within them with praise to God. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, 1 Peter 2, 24. Turn there, please. The doctrine of substitutionary atonement. That's what John the Baptist was pointing to when just three and a half years later, as Jesus was just beginning his public ministry, just after his baptism, he began his public ministry. John the Baptist was prophesying in the term, behold the Lamb of God, that three and a half years from now, guys, the Lamb of God is going to be the substitute of God for sinners. And 1 Peter 2.24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. That last phrase is a direct quote from Isaiah 53, by whose stripes you were healed, implying the substitutionary nature of our salvation. And he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He became our substitute to bear them. You and I would have to bear them in for eternity in hell. That's the price the sinner must pay just for one sin. Just one sin. That's how much God hates sin. That sinner would have to suffer for eternity. That's how exceedingly evil. One sin is never lose the, the sense of danger concerning how evil just one sin is. 
All you need to do is think about hell. And that will remind you. But the believer does not have to suffer Mm -hmm. such unthinkable punishment because he bore our own sins in his own body on the tree. He bore my sin on the cross. You say, well, that happened 2,000 years ago. Well, remember, he's God. And he had his people on their minds. He deliberately, he definitely had you in mind. It is a definite atonement, not a random thing. He had all of his sheep, all of his people, specifically, intentionally, deliberately in mind. He knew your name. Every hair in your head was numbered. He knew all your weaknesses. He knew about all your sins. But his love was so great and is so great it overcame the advanced knowledge of all, of all history, of all eternity, and still loved you so much that he died in your place on the cross and took all of those sins, most of them committed on a moral basis against God and against one another, he knew the immorality of, and of sin's nature and still chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And the way in which he died to purchase our salvation also speaks about his great love for sinners. He took our place. He personally, he personally bore my individual sins. The Christian should be moved to come before God and lay our lives at his feet afresh and say, how can it be wonder of wonders that I would be the recipient of such love that Christ would not only have to suffer to have my sins go through his mind and intentionally know that he was paying the price, the equivalent of an eternity in the lake of fire for my, Joe Jackowitz's specific sins. He, there's no nebulous thing here going on in the mind of Christ. Well, it's just kind of a ball of sin. No, he died to, to save us from specific sins. However, the amount may be, whatever the amount may be, if in the case of an individual sinner, the total accumulation of all of that individual sinner's sins amounts to 10 trillion committed over a lifetime, then 10 trillion it is. Because the whole Levitical system, which points to the sacrifice of Christ, was based on specific individual sacrifices of a lamb for specific people who would bring those lambs to the priest to offer up on the altar of sacrifice. I don't know about you, but theoretically, conceptually, I don't want my Lord Jesus to have to be thinking about my sin. That's embarrassing. That's shameful for me. It should be. It should be. But the Lord knew this. Yet his love, his love, Overcame his love for sinners, overcame the pain he would have to suffer. Where in a moment of time, just a few hours, he knew exactly which sins and who sins he was dying for as the sinner substitute. What kind of love is that? That's love. Embrace that love. Embrace it. Be reminded of it. Embrace it because that's the love of my Savior and your Savior for me and you. Let's love him back. Let's thank him. Let's praise him. In 1 Peter chapter 3, you're in 1 Peter 2, turn over one chapter to 3 and verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. Well, there's a purpose in this atonement, this substitution. He substitutes the just, Jesus, for the unjust. Why? 
to bring us to God. Do you realize or do you remember how desperately you, you and I needed Christ before our salvation as we groped around in darkness? Does it, does it ever occur to you? Has it ever occurred to you? How urgently you and I needed our blindness to be removed? We needed the profound reality that all existence is profoundly aware of, except of many on this little tiny crumb called planet Earth, but the rest of all existence and all the universe is fully aware of this reality that of who God is. He suffered and died that he might bring us to God, bring us back to God. In Ephesians 5 and verse 2, Ephesians 5 and verse 2, we read, As Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Now, embedded here, again, is the concept of substitution. Vicarious replacement of Christ for you and me in a place called hell and judgment. Because he loved us, he gave himself for us. The God of all flesh, the God of all creation, just gave himself for us based on his love. But remember, in substitution, before we repent and trust in Christ, when we yet remain in sin and trespasses and dead in them, we are a stench in God's nostrils, putrefying stink. All our unrighteousnesses are as filthy rags. When you take a dressing off of a wound that's filled with blood and other bodily fluids. You don't want to smell it. You just want to throw it away. It's a stench. That's how we were in our sin, a stench to God. But in substitution, God vicariously transfers our sin, our stench, our filth, to Christ and gives us and transfers to us the righteousness of Christ so that at the end of the process, after we put our trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior, we become this sweet-smelling aroma, no longer a stench to God. Look at it, 5-2. He offered himself an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. So, as the sinner substitute, there's the before and the after. There's the stench before, and there's the sweet-smelling aroma. <clears throat> Upon justification, God looks at us now through Christ and through the sacrifice of Christ. And what he smells is a sweet aroma. Looking at us, perceiving us, Christ has been placed over us and his sacrifice. And now who we are and what we are are always in Christ. And we become that sweet aroma to God. In Galatians chapter 3, Galatians 3. Are you hearing me today? Amen. Can you praise God for this? The Lamb of God, Jesus. Mm. The substitute for the sinner. Galatians 3.13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. That substitution. On judgment day, he should have cursed me. He should say, you are cursed. And then go down the litany of sins. And I would receive a curse from God himself for each sin. But instead of cursing me upon faith in Christ, he shifts that judgment 
and from bringing forth these curses to Jesus Christ. And he curses his own son. He has become a curse for us. I hear no loud cursing from God. I shrink under no weight of trembling and fear due to my sin because Christ receives those curses and punishment for my sin. He becomes a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And so through faith in Jesus Christ, a faith that saves, a faith that is tested and proven by a changed life, bringing forth the fruit of substitutionary atonement, which displays the fact that we have received the promise of the Spirit, that is salvation, the new birth, through the substitutionary sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And lastly, in Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, you knew I was getting to Isaiah, didn't you? 53. Yeah. Isaiah 53. Beginning at verse 4. I'll not read the whole chapter, but just select the key text. Verses 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. These three verses have six or seven references to substitution. It goes back and forth from you to him. From you, the sinner, to him, the savior. From you, the one who deserves the punishment, to him, the one who bears the punishment in our place, on our behalf. <clears throat> Powerfully pregnant with the truth and doctrine of substitutionary atonement here in verses 4 through 6. How could the Jews not see this? Well, blinders are over their eyes. A veil is over their eyes in Moses. But that veil is taken away in Christ. However, the blood of the lambs that were slain during the Old Testament didn't permanently put away sin. That entire Aaronic Levitical sacrificial system with all the many types of sin offerings they had, many different animals, and many different preparatory processes that the priests and the Levites had to go through to prepare the sacrifices and the altar and the blood and the hyssop and the branch and this and that and the spices and all of the rest. All of it, all of it pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. They were just types and figures. This huge system, these five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, thousands of ordinances directly or indirectly connected with the offering up of the atoning sacrifices. All of that system and all of those animal sacrifices and all the shedding of oceans of animal blood through the centuries in the Old Testament did not put away sin, did not purge and forgive one single sin, not one. So that those sins would be forgiven ultimately. They were not forgiven. Even though billions or trillions of dollars in today's monetary unit were spent on this whole secondary behind-the-scenes system of raising these animals and feeding them and taking care of them just so they can ultimately die on an altar in Jerusalem in the temple. None of it was any permanent value in forgiving sin. You would think they would get it. You would think that most of them would say, okay, now all, I'm going through all this hard work to feed these animals and raise them and shepherd them to Jerusalem, bring them to the priests and 
and I'm doing all this, and all of these priests are doing all that, preparing all these things that very strictly according to the letter of the law in the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, for nothing. And they didn't get it. They didn't connect the dots leading to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who would come. Those lambs were just pictures or types pointing forward to the day that God would provide a lamb with a capital L who would actually take away the sin and forgive the sin. What good is forgiveness if we're not forgiven? What good is a symbolic show in a temple adorned with gold if it doesn't purge sin and your own heart and your own conscience became more and more restless and miserable until ultimately after putting your trust in Christ, the sin was actually forgiven and the testimony of that sin and the witness of that forgiveness was affirmed by the Holy Spirit sent by God inside of you to give you peace with God that you were striving for ultimately. And so all through the centuries, it is so tragic and sad that the Jews were blind to this. Of course, they were just paying the consequences of their sins of rebellion and disobedience against God. And God poured out one of the worst judgments someone can ever, ever experience. Spiritual blindness, where God takes away their heart, their spiritual hearing, and their understanding to appreciate and benefit from the truth of God's word. And so, all through the centuries, the spiritual remnant now, the godly Jews, the genuine seekers, were waiting for the coming of this Lamb. Now at last, John the Baptist comes on the scene. The forerunner brings up the issue. Nobody else brought up the issue before him. No other prophets. It was reserved for the forerunner. And God blocked the other prophets, as holy as they were and as useful as they were. He blocked them from proclaiming this specific message that was reserved for the forerunner. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And at last, now was the time. The time had come. And John the Baptist triumphantly announced the arrival of the true Lamb of God. The Lamb of God that all those other lambs in the Old Testament that were sacrificed were pointing to. Oh, how the beauty and glory of the atonement of Christ is seen in this expression. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a very special time here. It's a huge pivot. The New Testament is about to be ushered in. And the teachers and the apostles and the prophets are getting ready to be used by God to explode truth into the situation so that you and I now, 2,000 years later, can revel and glory in the truth of substitution. Not only on a corporate level, but way down on an individual level that you and I can rejoice that Christ bore my sin in his own body on the tree. This statement by John the Baptist is meant to draw an important comparison between the Old Testament sacrifices of dumb animals compared with the infinite superiority of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, the New Testament, the Lamb of Christianity, not the irrational animals of the Old Testament. They were just used for a purpose to point us to what Jesus, the Lamb of God, would do in laying down his life as a sacrifice for sin, as a substitutionary sacrifice. 
God manifest in the flesh, who sacrificed himself for unworthy, hell-deserving sinners. And so our attention is drawn to the incredible truth of who this sacrifice is as God himself. This isn't just anybody, this lamb with a capital L, as so, so many writers of the New Testament describe. The spotlight is placed on the person of Jesus Christ, and we are intentionally brought to see Christ through the lens of a lamb, and specifically a sacrificial lamb. Why? Well, because Christ's atonement excels enormously in its efficacy or its effectiveness compared to the Old Testament lambs. The Old Testament lambs were just ritualistic, having an allegorical, typical meaning that could not benefit anyone unless they understood that it pointed to the Messiah, the suffering servant of the Lord, who was to come in the future. And that individual Jew, having his eyes or her eyes open to that truth, fixed and set their trust in that Messiah who was to come, leading to their new birth. And so, there's a tremendous amount of glory in this truth that Christ's atonement excels infinitely in its effectiveness over the Old Testament sacrifices. How, how does, the, does the lamb sacrifice excel so greatly over the Old Testament sacrifices? Well, the sacrifices of Judaism serve to bring sin to remembrance every year, but the sacrifice of Christianity took away the sin once and for all. <laughs> oh, oh, my brothers and my sisters, please do not restrain yourself from holding back of the core truth of the gospel in your communication with the lost of substitutionary atonement because only the substitutionary atonement that Christ purchased once for all can actually change a life and cause a sinner to be born from above and to be restored and reconciled in his or her relationship with God, which God initially intended to do when he prophesied in Genesis 3 and verse 15, which Pastor Owen will get to eventually in his study of Genesis 3, that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. And so let me just close with this passage of scripture in the book of Hebrews. Turn to the book of Hebrews. Verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 8. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. That's the physical temple in the Old Testament. And that physical temple did not show the way into the kingdom. The front door of that physical temple provided the way into the building, but it didn't show the way into the kingdom because that physical temple was just a type and a symbol of the spiritual kingdom. Verse 9, it was symbolic for the present time. That is back in the Old Testament. That's what the present time means. Mm -hmm. That physical temple was symbolic for the present time back then in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the sacrifice perfect in regard to the conscience. So the physical temple, within which was offered up physical animal sacrifices, could never address the huge spiritual issue that only could be addressed in the spiritual kingdom. And therefore, the consciences of the worshipers 
who through the priest offered up animal sacrifices were still crying out within them, guilty, 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 guilty. You, you cannot pacify a guilty conscience by offering up an animal on an altar. The temple and the physical worship taking place in it and the physical sacrifices being offered up could never reach into the heart and in the conscience. Verse 10, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. Again, he's making a comparison between all the rituals that the Jews were commanded to to do the, the drink offerings, the food offerings, the washings, the ceremonial purification times, the fleshly ordinances, do this, do that. These were all imposed through the five books of Moses upon the Jews. These physical ceremonies were imposed upon the Jews, and God said, do this, but they were not an end unto themselves. They were all types and figures pointing to conversion pointing to the new birth, which is a result of the atoning death of Christ, the sinner substitute. These fleshly ordinances, these ceremonial laws, were imposed upon the Jews until the time of Reformation. That is, until the time of spiritual Reformation, which would be brought in upon the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Then there would be this transformation or reformation of the spiritual man when that person exercises saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 11, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come. Watch, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not the physical tabernacle. The physical tabernacle or temple pointed to the spiritual temple. What's the spiritual temple? It's the whole realm of the kingdom of God in the spirit. That's where conversion takes place. That's where the spirit of God works invisibly in the hearts of people to give them a new heart. The spirit moves where he wills, okay? That's where God works. That's the spiritual temple that the physical temple activities were pointing to. And verse 11, but Christ came as a high priest to come um, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves. And so the sacrificial system of the Old Testament would be done away with because the blood of goats and calves could not form the grounds and basis of conversion. In the spirit, they were ceremonial and figurative in nature that pointed to his own blood, Christ's own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Again, he's making a comparison. He's saying, look, if the blood of those animals will cleanse the flesh, that is, will cover the external sins of the Jews that they commit individually for the moment, for the hour, during that Passover holiday, during that Yom Kippur moment. But then after that, after the Passover, the clock starts all over again for them and their sins start accumulating. Not that any of their past sins were forgiven. They weren't. The, the totality of their sins were still unforgiven. But God would cover their sins so that he could hear their prayers and their flesh, that is, their external man, would not bring about the anger of God. It would diffuse the anger of God for the moment so God could hear their prayers. But 
those animal sacrifices would have to be offered again next year at the atonement. But the blood of Christ was a once-for-all sacrifice. And it included sanctification. So that every Sunday that Christ Bible Church meets, and Brother George and Sister Mimi come in here, they don't have to bring an animal. They don't have to bring in a lamb. They don't have to do it all over again. Of offering up this animal until next, till next week. No. Christ propitiation and justification, his substitutionary atonement included the permanent forgiveness of sins. And that once for all blood also included the cleansing, the daily moment by moment cleansing of the forgiven sins in the life of believers who need to have their fellowship and daily walk with God restored and their conscience purified afresh so that they can maintain their walk with God. It includes sanctification, that once-for-all sacrifice. If I wasn't up here behind the pulpit, I'd be doing backflips out there up and down this aisle because it means that Pastor Owen and I have the temerity and the boldness to stand up here and tell you authoritatively from the word, examine yourself and so partake of the cup and the drink because Christ promises to cleanse your heart from a guilty conscience. My brother, my sister, can you praise God for what John the Baptist said? The truth inherent in that statement, behold the Lamb of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for redeeming us for taking our place in judgment, for bearing our own sins in your body on the cross, for making the payment that was required perfect, a perfect righteousness, for, for providing that perfect righteousness on our behalf. Help us to be worthy of it and the walk that you have called us to. Help us to lay our lives down afresh at your feet and love you and know you and serve you with the fresh awareness of this glorious truth of substitutionary atonement. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.